Hey friends, welcome to Kusini, the African grind, where we bring you the stories of young Africans from across the region, highlighting the good, the bad, and the ugly of building ventures or movement, and how they find balance in what they do. Thanks for choosing to be with us. I'm one half of your host, Maggie. And I'm the other half, Idel. Let's get into it. Welcome everyone to another episode of Kusini, the African Grind, where we get to hear the stories of young Africans doing, uh, bringing positive change within their communities through business, organizations, movements. And today we are excited to be joined by Portia Derry. Uh, she is a Ghanaian and the founder of Africa Youth Writers Organization. Um, Portia is very passionate about literacy, child literacy, um, and how we can empower people creatively to, to build their skills in that way. And also she incorporates, um, aspects of mentorship so that, you know, Africans, um, the kids that she works with can see people who they can look up to. So Portia, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes. I uh, we were just actually talking about how it's been, we, we met each other a while back, um, a few years back at a conference. And the conference was, you know, just about like bringing together people who are passionate about the continent. And when I met Portia then, she was very enthusiastic about linking up with people who are trying to make some sort of change. And even when we started talking uh, just now, I mean, you haven't lost that. You're really passionate about, you can tell that you're passionate about what you're working on. So yeah, please just maybe you can start off by telling us a bit more about the organization, you know, especially what inspired you to start to start this. Yeah, so maybe I'll start off with why I started it. So I run an organization called the African Youth Writers Organization, um, which designs literacy solutions for children and low-income communities in Ghana. Really now we are targeting children in the northern part of Ghana because the um, illiteracy rates in the northern part of Ghana is quite high. Well, um, growing up, I've always had this, you know, huge passion to read and write. You know, I started with reading eventually. I went on to write and at home, I remember my room was full with books, you know, story books. And I never wanted to read anything academic, just, you know, stories to get myself lost you know, and beautiful stories and stuff like that. So um, I was quite shocked when um, my university, four years in school, I um, I was sent to do my national study Ghanaian law in Ghana, that when students finish their university um, education, they are mandated to serve the country for free um, for one year. So I was sent to a very deprived community. And when I got there, I, you know, I just assumed that everybody could read and write. I assume that every child could, you know, just get lost in a storybook. But here I was, I was sent to teach um, three classes in, in English language. And then I got there and none of, not even a single child could understand what I was saying. And worst of all, they couldn't even read a single sentence in English. But these children were final year students preparing to write their final exams in just a couple of months. And it was quite shocking for me because these children, 
That's why the fact that they were based on the, a deprived community, they were going to write the same exams and national exams with children all over the country, you know, children, if you call it that way. So then I began to think what I could do differently. And I thought, well, why not start, why not experiment with some teaching methods to see whether it will work? And at that time, I wasn't a trained teacher. I, had, I was just fresh from university college. And so I started, you know, experimenting with games, activities. And I saw the children were very excited. And that led to, you know, one thing led to another. And I said, wow, well, it means that the children are really eager to learn. It's just that maybe the methods which I have been used to teach them are not that exciting. And I really saw great improvement uh, within those few weeks and, you know, the subsequent months I was, you know, handling the cats. So that led to me um, starting the African Youth Fighters Organization. Sort of, you know, the whole idea really is to make learning fun, um, you know, entertaining, exciting for cats to just get involved in it. Um, traditionally in our classrooms, especially in Ghana, you find that children... You know, they just sit back and then the teacher pour whatever they have onto them. There's no engagement, there's no participation, nothing. And it's kind of feel like boring because you know, the children like to be engaged, they like to be involved, they like to feel that they are part of um, the learning process. So then I started off, you know, I started with um, annual reading clinics and then I said, why not, you know, make it permanent? Why not do a regular thing, which I am? can enable me to measure the impact. And it, it led to me starting, you know, um, a Saturday a mentorship reading program where we select children from particular schools around a particular community. And then we, we say it's a clinic because it's kind of like a treatment center where these students come with, you know, zero skills, um, you know, poor reading skills, whatever, low confidence, and they come in within like four or five months, this really great improvement. In fact, when you're speaking, I could very much relate in terms of um, how the education system is in Kenya as well. It, it's it's mm -hmm. quite the same, that uh, what happens is that um, for, in school, essentially, you just take what the teacher tells you. You don't question it. Yeah, that's the truth. <laughs> in fact, questioning it is a sign that you're either being rebellious or there's something wrong with you as a child. And so you end up finding, and I would say, argue it's actually the same situation whereby you find that children who have finished primary school don't actually have yeah. the skills that they're supposed to have, whether it's mathematical skills, grammatical skills are not as good. And, and like you mentioned, that it tends to be skewed depending on where you are in terms of school. So if you're in private, for sure, you're at a higher advantage than those who are um, in, a, in public schools or even in the rural areas, more so like what you're mentioning. So I'm just curious in terms of how, um, so you go, you move, you are taken to the northern part of Ghana, you start working. How was that process of, because you sort of described uh, in general how it looks like and how the progression was and how you started with it all. But I'm guessing in this entire, uh, I, I'm curious to understand in terms of how this came to be an organization? Uh, was it something that you started informally? And then at what point did you now realize, oh, we need to formalize this? And then what, what was that process of now moving it from an informal to a formal um, sort of organization? So it was, it was um, you're right, it was quite, you know, very informal, you know. 
I remember, you know, just having the idea and, you know, going on social media, creating the name. At that time, really, I would say I was really very naive about lots of things. I didn't know how organization work. I didn't know. Uh, I didn't really even understand the the real problem at that time, you know. And and here is the important thing, you know, when you have when you have great passion is very important, but sometimes, you know, all the times passion is just not enough. You know, you need to do your homework well. So it's been kind of like a journey from one stage to another. So um right now the stage in which we are, we've we've had ma- massive growth, massive improvement. The way we did things, you know, some three years back is is not what we do now. Right now we we when I started, when we first started, like, uh, like I said, we didn't really understand even what the problem was. When I said that, I thought like the issue was, you know, just having more books in, in the system, you know, publishing more books, uh, marketing the books and getting parents to buy the books. But when I narrowed down and this came with time, you know, as we did the first reading clinic, you got to, you know, uh, um, I would say I got faced with the real challenges. And then I went back to when we had another, the second reading clinic, it just got better. So you see, as you, you see your mistakes, you see your weakness, and see how you can strengthen the program. Mm-hmm. So that made, as, as we went on from one, one stage to another, one reading clinic to another over the years, we kind of like really, I felt that now I understood what the real problem, the real problem was that like children, as you rightly pointed out, from the early stage, I'm missing out, you know, vital skills, vital literacy skills. So they can't even read, they can write, they can, you know, do basic calculations. And once they get to um, 14 years, 15 years, it's kind of like there's nothing you can do anymore because the foundation is the key. So then it, it, it don't mean I have to, you know, first we're targeting uh, you know, teenagers, children in, in senior high schools, university graduates, but then um, you can't really force someone with new skills or new habits, you know, reading. And then I realized that, you know, I really have to, you know, narrow down my, the, the solutions I wanted to um, give out. So for instance, you realize that I, read, um, I found that kind of quite shockingly that, you know, you have to like pick one particular thing to tackle at a time. And that was exactly what I did. I had to focus on one bit um, of the problem and do what I, I, I was best placed to offer. So I started focusing on children, you know, right from the primary school before they even got to the GSS to try to kind of like build up their literacy skills and rectify whatever they had lost in schools. So it's, I would say for most young people out there, like uh, don't really be concerned about having, you know, everything just in place. It takes time, you know, it's like um, a caterpillar, you know, turning into a beautiful butterfly. So it takes stages. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you even discover new, new terms that you might never have even thought about. And sometimes you discover that you really made some really huge mistakes. And But these are all important because it helps you to better improve your organization or whatever program you are working on. I I like that. And I think even from the people we've spoken to um, in the past episodes, that's something that comes out a lot that it takes time. 
I think um, a lot of times there's a misconception that you enter, you have the idea, you'll get in, you'll execute it flawlessly, and then it will be good times from then on. And it's not always that. Um, there's something interesting you've said about schools. I've worked a bit with schools, um, both in schools as a volunteer, but maybe also trying to approach schools for initiatives and ideas. And I don't know if it's the same, but schools are some of the hardest, schools next to hospitals, I think, yeah. are some of the hardest institutions to change, like to just change because they have a set way they do things. They have a set way they go about um, their activities. And uh, so how do you, um, in your journey, who, how did you, you even your, your first test, your first uh, initial uh, pilot, how did you convince people that you have this idea and you tell them actually this is a good thing and all that and even just getting people to join you because i'm assuming we're taking time out of your day to do some of these things yeah. um you couldn't have done it alone i know now you have an amazing team but yeah how was that first journey of trying to convince first of all the schools um and then even people to help you especially i know i know someone must have told you like you how you know you you've not you've just graduated you know <laughs> what do you know I've been here for like X like of years I don't know if you got that but yeah could you tell us about that yeah um I mean um you're right um no matter how passionate you are no matter how skilled you are you can certainly you can do everything on your own you've got to you know surround yourself with people who are as passionate as you are and the issues that you're working on. So um, when I first started out, all I had was just passion, no experience, nothing, no resources. And so I just got like, you know, maybe two friends and stuff like that. And we drafted a letter to our first partner, which was the Ghana um, Regional uh, Library. And that was the time we were organizing our first annual event. So it was kind of like a, a, um, a fair, a reading fair for children, all children. and um, I realized that what really helped was, you know, going um, for events or programs and networking to find people who talk like me, people who are equally interested in reading and writing or literacy or, you know, mentoring and stuff like that. And uh, when I got um, those people, they all, you know, sharing one idea or one idea or another, and then it really helped a lot. So, and the support too as well, no matter how much resources you are, you get frustrated at a point, you get exhausted. And it's really important that you have people coming in to say, okay, you know what, I can donate some books, I have a car, I, I have some snacks that I can give to the kids. And, you know, even just even advice on how to run things really helps. So I would say for me, networking has really helped. Networking to find the right people and, you know, engaging them and always looking out for who is doing what makes all the difference. And so after the first event, the annual event, I got so much feedback on it. And then um, someone advised that why not do it? You know, why not? Why not? If you're doing an annual event, it's hard to really track the pro uh, progress of the children. Why not do something that you could, you know, monitor the children and, you know, just have a platform where you can engage with children. I think that was like the best advice I had and which led to me making some changes and having um, kind of like a permanent structure for the reading clinic to us. Yeah, so for me, you know, tapping into the right source of volunteers, 
and all the work you do, like you rightly mentioned, I do this on part-time basis. I have a full-time job, but yet um, I have to like squeeze time out to be able to do this. And all the other volunteers on the team to uh, have their, you know, day job and they have to also sacrifice. And which obviously means we have a huge challenge of resources of um you know, making sure that everything is in order because everybody is so busy and to get people fully committed is sometimes a huge challenge because not everybody will be available all the time. Even me, myself, I'm not always available all the time. So that in itself is a huge challenge. But yeah. Do you, you said you, the, the program is mainly in the north. Do you live close to the program or are you... um? Yeah, are you close by? And if not, how do you balance that? Because I can imagine, and you just said you have a full-time so, job. Um, I, I do live in the northern part of Ghana, um, but I work in a different district. So where I work is kind of like um four hours, because the road is not that good, four hours, maybe, you know, four and a half hours away from where the clinics run. So it means every weekend I have to like be back to the important thing for me was, you know, to kind of travel, um, to make a journey to realize that, you know, the clinics or whatever the organization should not just be about me, such that if I'm not available, then the it's clinic cannot go on. Yeah, certain structures. So I, I had to kind of like, you know, so that whether I'm around or not, whether I'm traveling or not, um, there should be people who could, who should be able to run the clinics, you know. How big, how big is your team right now? Like you said, you started with what, two people and now you have, how big is yeah, your team? Yeah, now we have, so we have like a large uh, database of volunteers. So what happens is that um, whenever we have a program or we are planning a program, then we invite everybody who is around in the area or who would like to travel and come for the program. So, um, but right now for the team itself, we have like four or five people on the team that is like permanent, you know, managing staff. But for the mentors and volunteers, we just reach out to other networks. We have networks such as the Ghana um, Bar Camp um, groups, the Ghana Volunteer Program, those kind of things. We just reach out, send a word out, you know, that we need um, volunteers and then we, we get them from there. So your your network is like um in the hundreds basically. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we kind of try to utilize other existing platforms or other networks already. So, um, these people, you know, the idea on WhatsApp platforms, Facebook, wherever, it just you know, it's it's much easier yeah. to you know get everybody you know attract people to come and join um, events or activities we are organizing. Yeah. I like that. I like that approach. Then no need to reinvent the wheel when there's something already running. It's how do you use it to enhance your objective and what you're planning to do. I, and I really like the idea what you've mentioned earlier in terms of adapting, adapting as you go, um, and being very clear that things will be very, are very dynamic. I want to just take it back in terms of now, um, you mentioned setting up an organization, now moving that from an informal to a formal structure. So you've set up an, your organization and it's an NGO, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Now, how, um, and we know how, how 
in the development space, uh, working within NGOs. So I work within NGOs and one of the biggest challenges tends to be um, funding and how mm. you get consistent, sustainable funding for the programs that you have. So how is that something that you've been, uh, how, how are you managing that aspect? So it's spot on. It's really a huge um, challenge, funding, you know. <laughs> and for us, we've not really, you know, applied for any major um, funding opportunity. So we've not received any funding. Or whatever we've done for the past, really? you know, four, five, six, seven years has been through our own packets. Yeah. Kind of like a community wow. approach, a community approach whereby, like, if we are organizing a clinic, like, so the clinic, we organize them every year. A clinic runs for like four to five months. Usually what we need is, you know, um, writing materials, reading materials, a space. These are the huge costs. And then, you know, water for them to drink and stuff like that. And also the graduation ceremony takes quite a bit of resources. So all this, what we normally do is the community approach, um, whereby, for instance, we try um, smart <laughs> budgeting and smart way of raising funds. So we link up with bookshops who would kind of like donate their old stuff, old writing materials and stuff like that for us at either low cost or no cost at all. Mm-hmm. And for the space where would 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 um you know host the children instead of like renting a space for a fee for the entire five months, we rather collaborate with you know maybe an organization like the cultural center, you know, a social hub or a youth mm-hmm. center or some sort like that. So then they give us the space for free. Mm. And then instead of paying, um, you know, mentors to come in to, you know, mentor, because we really don't have anything to give uh, a stipend or allowance, transport or stuff like that. We really have to like negotiate and then, you know, have, you know, the community rather donating for us. And the whole idea is to prove that, um, um, Local solutions can indeed run on their own without external funding, if we really want to, without external aid. Because the thing is that if all if if all our ideas, wonderful ideas and solutions are going, its engine is going to be based on external aid or funding. What happens if the funding ceases? And we've seen that in COVID times, where you know funding. Most NGO fundings have been reduced drastically, or perhaps maybe the funding has even stopped all of a sudden. What happens to the projects, the programs, the activities, and stuff like that? So first, we wanted to prove to ourselves that, well, even without major funding, um, coming together as a community of parents, teachers, bookshop owners, you know, print and press, some government of um organizations and you know people just private person doing their stuff we can actually do something on our own so that was also the whole idea and um so far i i say we've succeeded a bit but it's really not easy because sometimes the money comes out from our own pockets you know so imagine if you don't have a job a full-time job or a job that gives you some significant kind of salary and 
you're really going to be hard up because even voluntary calling for volunteers and so especially uh, young people who have just finished school they really have no jobs they have in their pockets and they really deserve you know some kind of transport stipends and stuff like that but it's not easy so we've been running it on limited resources and you know some bit of donations here and there from people who really believe in the cause that we've never actually had any major funding or apply for any major funding but uh, honestly we are we know that it's not sustainable enough because you can people are going to get them because even me i would also get tired if you know my resources get limited especially these times when economic hardships are you know rising higher and higher so the things that we are thinking of you know having um a sustainable um profit part of the non-profit so like um designing a little tickets for people to buy at a, a, a price or fee and then using the money to channel back to support the reading clinics. That makes it a bit more sustainable in the room. We are thinking of um, a sustainable model where we'll have a for-profit part of the, the organization which will use the um, profits to reinvest in the non-profit part of it. I'm so impressed, Bosha. I'm really <laughs> six years. Like I um I, I genuinely am beyond impressed. And I I mean I I mean I I'm I'm actually being challenged, uh, to be honest. Because <laughs> um a friend of mine also we had started up a youth leadership program and mm-hmm. everything was coming from our pockets. And the question of funding was always we were always trying to figure out how to work in the question for funding. And for me, yeah. what I'm learning from you is this idea of how strongly you've engaged the community to almost a point where they feel an ownership to mm-hmm. the and they want to actively contribute towards yeah. it, have it sustained. You're very aware that you don't want to be dependent on donor funding and already even thinking of strategies of, okay, then how else can we still be able to make sure we're self-sufficient? I think, mm-hmm. to be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm really impressed. I am learning so much from this, <laughs> from you. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, I definitely think it's just brilliant how you're thinking um, and that idea of moving away from depending on other people because that's never going to be something that is self-sufficient. You've kind of captured it. I think it's it's really hard. Um, it's really hard to sometimes people have really good ideas and then, you know, just trying to get it from idea to implementation. The funding is the biggest problem, actually. But I also, on top of what Megia said, I also... I applaud the fact that you recognize they need to be money matters in some way. So you need to either do like mm-hmm. um, something sustainable. Um, yeah. For me, it's more of I, I, even when I had your idea a few years back, um, I loved it. I think it's even something that in one way, in a different sort of way, um, I try to do in Kenya. But uh, you know, it's it's a it's a hard concept to sell financially. Um, from what I saw, and mm-hmm. I wonder if you have you have um, tried to get funding. What that experience has been like? I know you 
who are in the, correct me if I'm wrong, you're in the Mandela Washington, one yeah. of those fellows, right? So in, in those circles that you are working in, did you ever try to get funding or, or have you tried to pitch your idea? Um, yeah, so sort of I think I, yeah. I, I've actually tried to pitch the you know, uh, profit part of the idea and I got to, you know, um, you know, maybe the semi-final stage or the quarter stage and then I didn't make it. And then I've tried, I think last month I tried to, you know, put in an application for funding and stuff like that. So I have, I'm beginning to see, to sort of like maybe try a little so which is good in a way and then but um you have to really you know know what exactly you stand for and what you are passionate about so it's good to look for funding but just know that um you can have it either way so you can ha have your cake and eat it you still have to you have to be like flexible in a way so we are open to that option too so maybe um next year try more funding opportunities especially funding for, you know, small um, organizations such as ours, because most of the fundings too are targeting, you know, huge, um, big organizations. And especially the whole idea started as, you know, kind of like um, something to do in my spare time, like something out of passion. But later I had to really, I had to legally register it as an organization because then you need like a legal back end to, uh, a back end to engage students because you are dealing with children you need some kind of legal you know back end to kind of engage you know stakeholders and stuff like because parents want to know that their children are safe um, and stuff like that so then I, I knew that you know I, I could not just have the idea as an idea per se I had to you know formally you know have a structure in which I'd be able to engage with different stakeholders Mm, that's really true. You're dealing with um, children and then with the children, in addition to parents, then you have the law, you have curriculums that you either need to abide by or um, keep in mind. So maybe could you just, you, you said your program has evolved. You, something that struck me that you said was you needed to, there were many problems. You needed to find that problem, one, the one that you wanted to focus on and the one that you wanted to do. Can you sort of explain to us how your program has evolved today? Um, how your program runs today? So the kids go for the the session okay. for five months, and then what's what is the ideal win for you? Like, what do you want to see when the kids are out of this five month program or six month program? No, well, that's a very good question because you know you need to know the kind of outcomes you want. Either than that, you would just be running, you know. Um, an activity and not really getting much out of it. So for me, I try to kind of use qualitative um, methods to kind of measure the impact. So what I'm looking out for is the first time the children, the first week the children came into the clinic, um, were they able to read at least one page um, of a storybook? Were they able to even understand what they read? Um, at, at the first week they came in, how was their classroom performance? How was their confidence and stuff like that? Then we, we kind of like take it from there and, and measure the, the, the ending of the month, the second month, you know, can they still read the same book that they started off? Can they read? Can they understand the words? Can they spell the words and stuff like that? And then after the whole five months, we kind of like, um, 
during the, the, the entire duration, we try to, you know, kind of just the, um, make sure, you know, the um, imaginations, they are thinking, they are imagining outside the space in which they are. Because one very important thing that you will notice is that children, most children from deprived communities and deprived schools really do not, they do not have anything to to dream about. Mm. They are just limited. Yes. If you give if you give a child, you know, if a child in the city you 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 give a storybook to a child and the child is let's say Sleeping Beauty, the child will be able to tell you, oh, you know, oh, I think Sleeping Beauty was this. I think the man should have done this and that. But children from that other environment will not even be able to. They don't even know what is happening in the story. They cannot even think to tell you what what should have happened, the characters what they thought the story was about those things. So we really want to see how after the five months duration, can the children imagine stories on their own? If they are walking and then they saw, you know, a big tree just blocking the road, what will they do? Things like that. Can they be that creative? Because what creative writing and reading storybooks does for children is that it exposes them. It, it just, you know, um, improves their thinking, critical thinking. And then, you know, you can imagine whatever you can you you want to imagine, like your dreams are not limited. And so we try to kind of like provoke them, push them to kind of like think outside. You know, it's true that they are, their economic situation is not so good. Maybe at home, it's not even good. Their classrooms are not the best. But aside those social uh, limitations, they can be whatever they want to be. So we try to see whether the children have gotten that. And then the way in which we measure is that throughout the five months, we ask them to pick a social issue which they are in their community, which they are passionate about, or which they see around. So we've had past fellows talk about, um, you know, flooding. They've talked about teenage pregnancy and stuff like that. So they have that topic in their head. And then we ask them to at least write any creative piece or creative story on the issue. And at the end of the five months, we have like, um, I would say, a display of all the stories. And then we invite parents, community um, members, teachers to come and just see the wonderful stories on the social issues that the fellows have been able to, you know, think and write. And they're allowed to draw and color you know, whatever they want to. And at the end of the day, we choose like the best stories or the best writing. And then we kind of like publish them in a collection of um, stories as well. And we're trying to partner with um, some other literacy organization in the USA where we can have, you know, these stories published in the form of like a book with the, along with the drawings. And you should see how proud the children are just to see their stories display for their parents and their teachers. Imagine a school children who could not even write mm-hmm. or read or even understand what to think and write on a social issues such as, you know, teenage pregnancy, bush pain and stuff like that. So we try to see. Um, and, and, and really one interesting thing that I love so much is that at the end of the five months, the climax, we call the graduation ceremony, red carpet graduation ceremony. The children organize this the event themselves. So the MC themselves, the DJ themselves, um, 
they do the planning, the invitation <laughs> and stuff like that. Mm. Yeah. And it's, it's just pure joy to see that you no know, children know when um, people feel they are important. They feel it. And we just want to like shower them with love to know that, you know, despite their current situation, they are very important. And we acknowledge that and we know that um, they have the potential to excel. And yeah, like you said, it's, um, the, the joy you get from it is, I can say, it's much even better than being paid in gold because um, the reward is in their eyes, you know, blinking with joy and stuff like that. And I tell you what, you see the result. Mm. But then we still have to get the job done. Having worked in a similar sort of program where you're dealing with children who've come from disadvantaged communities and sometimes they will talk to you when you open up the space which you find a lot of them just actually want a space to talk and so that's one of the things you have um you can definitely get um this outpouring of a lot of challenges that they're facing and sometimes you can get overwhelmed in terms of how do i do this how do i support them um how do you manage this way of sort of inspiring them and giving them all this hope versus what they have to face on a day-to-day basis yeah i think it's really a very uh, wonderful question because sometimes when um people are passionate and stuff like that they tend to even forget about themselves and their well-being and, you know, um, it's just, I've learned the hard way. You need to think of yourself first. It's not selfish to think of yourself because if you are not healthy, if your mental health is not, you know, right, how then are you going to help people? Most often, um, you know, most entrepreneurs or most people in the nonprofit space, they are giving out a lot, you know. It might not be... Um, physical resources, it's just their time. Even listening to people's stories can be very draining and exhausting mm. to a point that, you know, sometimes you just have to, uh, you just have to step back and say, hey, you know, I need some me time. I need to, you know, focus on myself. I need to, you know, also have someone listen to me. And you need to, at the point in time, you need to realize that it's not everything that you can deal with is in school. Some of them is that, Unfortunately, you have no power to control because you, you don't control the universe. It's only God that controls the universe. So you have to know that you are not a superhero in that sense. You're not someone that can fly through continents and oceans and mountains. Mm-hmm. And you need to recognize that you're just a small part. You're doing your part. You're on a journey to also contribute your part, but you cannot do everything. And realizing that saves you a lot of headache and it's just, you know, it makes you, you know, live a more healthy life. What does the future of um, African Youth Crisis Organization look like? I like the way you say it. You say it's Africa, Ayo, Ayo. <laughs> Ayo. Yeah, what does the future look like? I'm tempted to say that the things that you're doing should be common sense, like helping people learn in the way that they learn. Um, I'm personally just, I feel like, you know, we need to catch up to our future in our education system where learning is to some degree very personalized. Um, understanding that people learn in different ways and at different paces and if we can cater to that. Um, but I also understand we have limitations, you know, the student-teacher ratio in many, many of our countries is just, it's abnormal. Um, infrastructure is just not there. Um, and, the, you, you know, if you don't count like also other issues people are facing on a day-to-day 
but I feel like the, the, the things that we are talking about here should be ingrained into the education system. So I'm tempted to say that, you know, we should have more of these programs like yours in more schools in Ghana. Um, but yeah, have you, have you, is that somewhere where you're looking towards or is that, are you like thriving off of this setting you have now? Because I think what you have, the benefit is this community feel. Everybody feels interested. Um, yeah, but I would love to hear, what, what do you see? Your yeah, I'm thinking of, you know, kind of um, like reaching more children. That's my goal. Currently, our capacity, we are unable, we just um, only able to meet the needs of 30 children per year. So that's a really low, low number. Compare um, if we had the resources, we could be reaching, you know, hundreds of children in, you know, a month and years. So we are really looking to make sure that um, more children get access to our programs. And we are looking forward to you know, making sure that other regions in Ghana, other areas in Ghana also benefit from the program. So kind of like spreading the wings of the organization, if you like. But one thing I've also learned is that sometimes um, you have all these wonderful plans and ideas and um, sometimes you need to be a little bit flexible to, you know, go with the flow, to let the journey take you along, to enjoy the journey. So you might have wonderful plans on paper, but something unexpected might happen. And then, you know, you stumble upon, you know, maybe a new innovative way to do things. So I'm so open to what the journey would um, involve and just to see. But yeah, I'm really hoping we could reach more children, kickstart our social venture, the nonprofit part of it and see what what happens. And, you know, um, partner with more organizations, because when you partner with more people, you collaborate with more people, it makes the cost, cost of things very cheaper. And we really want um, anybody anywhere in the world should be able to run, you know, our reading clinic um, based on the fact that the costs and the budget of it is it's very affordable. Yeah. And so the communities themselves would would be able to um run their own clinics as well with their own local resources as you were saying this about um communities independently running such activities but from based on like your affordable the affordable budget you've put together i can't help think of some projects where it's like a it's like a library in a box or like a learning mm -hmm. clinic in a box and all you have to do is just replicate it in different places um, and I think there's also potential for that. I've seen that being done in other, okay, still in the education sector, but in other different ways. Mm -hmm. um, so I would just love to chat with you and some more just about your ideas on how um, this can be, it can be implemented actually in any country, even who knows, even in Kenya. You have written a children's book. That's the other part of me in writing, you know, making sure, you know, we also have um, quite a lack or inadequate um, African stories in the market for children, African children to read. So yeah, I'm trying my best. I have a book titled Grammar's List, um, and then which has been which has a South African version titled Google's List, sold in South African series. I'm working on um, producing more books, hopefully maybe next year, and seeing how it will go. Congratulations. Uh, and I, I like that you're also not only are you doing like with what you do with the African Youth Writers Organization, but also 
bring, we want more African stories and putting out African stories more and more. And I know that's something Idel highly resonates with. <laughs> so um, please let us know where can people yes. get the book. So yeah, um, anyone anywhere in the world can get the book on Amazon. If you just Google um, the author's name, which is me, Portia Berry, the book's will pop up or you could just you know google grammar's list on amazon and then it can show that you um buy them from you can also buy if if you are based in south africa or even the interesting thing about the south african book is that it's translated into um four languages in south africa so if you want your children to you know read um some you know local languages that would be a nice thing you can also order from the publisher in South Africa called um, Jakana Media. And then um, if you, so if you Google, if you just Google Grammar, so if you Google the name Portia there, you see the books pop up and, you know, where to buy them. I also um, have a personal blog where I write, you know, short, short stories, poems, and, you know, creative stuff as well. You can find and on the website, where to buy the books to as well. So the best thing is just to Google the name and you would find out, you know, where to buy them. So everyone who's listening at Kusini right now, please make sure, to, uh, if you have a daughter, we all have nieces, uh, so <laughs> or we all have friends who have daughters. So please just Google Grandma's List on Amazon and uh, buy a gift uh them and also for yourself um i don't think you can ever yeah, be- i mean yeah, um, <laughs> yeah i mean the book i mean though it's um a children's book it's, it's a wonderful family book that you know family members themselves can just get around and read it aloud it's very enjoyable that way and you know just have um we're encouraging parents and you know everybody out there to spend time reading with children you know, reading to children, reading with children, and just encouraging, you know, just putting books out there around children. It doesn't matter what age your child is. Even whilst you're pregnant, a woman is pregnant, you can still read to the baby in the room. If the baby is a few months old, you know, yes, anybody at all can read. So it's very important that um, you read with your kids and read with your lovely nieces and nephews and stuff like that. Thank you so much. We're really excited. Um, looking forward to. Uh, reading the book and even many more and also um, like Maggie and I have just said we are very passionate about this topic and you know anyway we can personally support we'll definitely be reaching out just to chat I think one thing that has really outstanded us is you know just the, the length of time you've been working on this and also the amount of personal finance effort time out of your yeah. daily day-to-day because, you know, because you do have a job separate from this organization. Yeah. So I think, to be honest, it's so amazing um, that you're able to balance all these things. But again, mm-hmm. keeping in mind the stuff you're saying about, you know, reaching out for help, taking care of yourself. These are just good messages that I think anyone um, should listen to and try and follow. Because, you know, the more the more time you put to yourself, the more energy you have to do more for more people. Um so yeah, we're, we're just really impressed with what you're doing, Portia. I am excited to see the future of it. And you know, on behalf of the Cosini podcast, we really thank you for your time. Um, and we'd love to have you, you know, here again, you know, anytime. Um, but yes, thank you so much for, for today's conversation.
Yeah, and thank you for having me. I think I've also enjoyed the conversation and I hope, you know, it will inspire anybody out there, you know, to just, you know, kind of like start something out of passion. But, you know, that thing in your heart that you're yearning to do, just reach out and, you know, follow the dream, even if you're afraid. And who knows, it might, you know, it might take you, it might heal you as well and it might, you know, um, have great impact on the lives of so many people. That's it for now. Thank you for listening to Kusini, the African Grind podcast, where we dive into the amazing journeys of Africans making their mark. Look out for more episodes. Until next time, bye.